Hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson and week by week I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 5. Discord. This week I wanted to talk about music and songwriting. And so where better to start than with the theme tune that opens our episodes every week. The theme tune is written by composer Luke Bateman. So I thought I'd talk to Luke, firstly to dissect the theme tune, and then to dissect another of his songs. So for part one of today's episode, the Discord theme tune. It was really important to me that our theme music related to both musical theatre and podcasts. Because podcasts are such a contemporary medium, their theme music tends to sound quite modern And since they're created on computer and transmitted by the internet, they're entrenched in the language of digital and contemporary transmission, with music that often incorporates the digital, including drum machines and synthesizers. This all seemed useful to me, because I knew I was making a podcast about new musical theatre, how we could make it better, and how we could find innovative intersections between music and theatre. But in addition to the contemporary, I also wanted the opening music to be reverent of the past masters and the craft found in musical theatre history. So what was I looking for? A digital and contemporary sound fused with the craft and history of the medium of musical theatre. With this brief in mind, I went to Luke Bateman. I want something to do with uh, musical theatre, but I want it to sound as cutting edge as you can make it. Um, But I want you to consider what's gone on before. And somewhere in the conversation, he said the word somewhere, not in reference to uh, musical theatre at all, but that made me go, I've got an idea. Uh, I think I'm going to draw inspiration from West Side Story. So by happenstance, the song that Luke based the theme tune around was Somewhere from West Side Story with music by Leonard Bernstein and with a lyric by Stephen Sondheim. And I really like the fact that that is the song that makes up our theme tune because the lyric of that piece of music is there's a place for us and the whole idea of the podcast is to figure out where exactly in the theatrical spectrum music and theatre and musical theatre fit and how they can make up a wider proportion of that spectrum. I just thought the more more contemporary fashion if I can say is uh, certainly more repetitive loops which is obviously what we use quite a lot in the digital world so taken a short phrase from from somewhere and, and essentially looped loops the harmony and uh, distorted the rhythmical use of uh, of there's a place for us Just stopped it there obviously it's a theme tune so you kind of want it to be fairly catchy fairly quickly so you you keep your uh, uh, melodic ideas pretty short but hopefully pretty sharp So Luke takes the first four chords of Somewhere by Leonard Bernstein, adapts the rhythm, combines them with a drum machine and plays them on a synthesizer. Here is the original. And here is Luke's version. I wanted to talk about this theme tune because one of the big conversations going on regarding new musical theatre, especially in Britain, is about how to create cutting-edge, innovative, contemporary musicals. 
And my particular belief is that we shouldn't disregard the past in order to create things that are innovative. We should actually look back into the past in the way that all great art builds on the history of its predecessors. What I believe this theme tune shows is that you can create a modern and contemporary sound while using a chord progression used in a musical more than 50 years ago. And that maybe some of the craft and song structure that went into that work shouldn't be ignored in making new musicals. That rather than throwing out the past, we should look at the craft and history and structure and we can investigate how to reform that into new combinations. It's a chord uh, structure that's used in many, many songs. This, this is not unique to the song. The version uh, I'm looking at right now is in uh, E flat, but starts on the uh, dominant, went first. First inversion, then going to seven of that, and then we get to the E flat. Because the lyric of Somewhere by Stephen Sondheim can't be included in an instrumental theme tune, Luke also decided to throw into the mix some of Stephen Sondheim's music. The, the Sondheim I would use to go alongside the, the melody and uh, harmony of Bernstein was from Mary Me Little, which has got a real drive to it. It's So that kind of drive underneath, so very similar rhythm, I didn't use exactly the same as, as that, but that was the, the motivation, the, the idea of combining the two. So again, here is the accompaniment of Stephen Sondheim's Marry Me A Little. And here is Luke's theme tune, which incorporates a similar motif. In the process of talking about reconstituting and reforming elements from past work in order to make something new and contemporary, I asked Luke about the idea of originality and innovation and whether writers could start out with the lone objective of being inventive. Well, I don't think anyone's ever just gone out there and invented something. I mean, obviously the biggest bang in music, it was all working on this nice uh, forward progression in the classical world up until, you know, the early 20th century when you suddenly had the second Viennese school with uh, Schoenberg, Bergen and Webern. But even those three, like an artist studying their craft and copying masters before they moved on to the next thing, they really knew what they were doing in orchestration. And some of Schoenberg's early work is just some of those beautiful stuff you'll ever hear. Um, but he had to react against that, but he had to know what he was reacting against before he could create the... Uh, the well, serialism that, that followed, which everyone in turn they got very excited about and followed and followed and until we kind of actually got got further away from that atonalism, I, I think, in the uh, early 20th century now. The idea kept coming up of rather than just trying to be original, of looking at what came before, of getting to grips with what's around at the moment, but getting comfortable in that and then figuring out how to say that in a way that fits the story and that fits the personality of the people making the work. I asked Luke how he would go about creating a piece of contemporary work where his brief was to create a sound that had never been heard before. Ah, <laughs> uh, almost can't bear the idea because the word contemporary exactly that means, wow, it's got to it's gotta be... It's like the word avant-garde. Make it avant-garde, make it, make it something new... Well, then you're spending so long thinking about 
how to make it different that you're not really thinking about the the work and I I would just turn it down and it would be the the whole adage that content dictates form that that is how you write the show and how that comes out I don't know but trying to just be new for the sake of it uh, it kind of terrifies me really again the idea of content dictating form comes up and that perhaps if you want an innovative musical pick some innovative content and find the form that that content dictates rather than just creating innovative content for the sake of it I, th- I think you can find yourself big torturing yourself when you just get obsessed with just the new that you want to create this new thing or you've seen someone else break through and you go ah why how do they come on? Hamilton, obviously, is the, is the latest thing that the whole world is going, oh, um, how do you come up with that? What's interesting to me about Hamilton is that even though it looks and sounds like an incredibly contemporary show, so much of the structure and so many of the choices in the writing of the, both the lyrics and the music is based upon the history and the canon of musical theatre. It's an incredibly reverent piece of theatre and very, very respectful of the history of both musical theatre and American history. So something innovative has been made, but only by very much standing on the shoulders of the giants that preceded it. And to look at Hamilton as just a new piece of theatre, I think, is to do it a disservice and do the canon and the history of musical theatre a disservice too. Um, it would be quite wrong of me to suddenly sit down and go, well, I, writing a hip-hop musical is now it's the way forward for me. This is obviously the new thing, which is actually... It's kind of what those big hits of the 80s did to a lot of people. They just tried to recreate uh, the Les Miserables. And then obviously, sometime is, is another composer. Well, I just, if I can just be like him, then I'll do really well. So as well as this misconception of ignoring the past, I think there's another misconception, which is if someone manages to make a hit or a show that's well-received, there seems to be this immediate aftermath of people copying only that show rather than reaching back and looking at the influences and the history and the craft that have made up that show so i think for example it's a really big problem if people just start looking at hamilton with no knowledge of what has gone into that show and just try and kind of broadly copy the idea of a hip-hop musical and try and copy the way hamilton does it i think keep understanding what's gone before and work, work on that but then eventually you'll find your own voice at least that's that's the goal anyway this always makes me think of a lyric from move on from sunday in the park with george a show by stephen sondheim and james lapine and the lyric is if it comes from you then it will be new and i think this has two meanings the first is it has to be something that means something to you and it has to be you that says it if it's you that says it it will be new just by the virtue of the fact it is spoken with your voice. So if it comes from you, then it will be new. It doesn't necessarily matter if all of the things that you're saying haven't been said before. Because I think if you spend your entire life looking for things that haven't been said before or ways of saying them that haven't been said before, that search only for originality is going to be a bit of a headache. When I was younger and an actor, and I a director once saying to me this is probably quite obvious to other people said, but what have you got that no one else has got and they, I, I don't know well you're you no one else can actually be you bring an element of you to every performance then yours will be different from the one that went before yeah 
and I think I try and try and think about that in music as well. Referencing back to the theme tune and the use of synthesizer in modern instrumentation, I ask Luke if the sound of the orchestration and the instruments used is relevant to the time period that the musical is being made in and how contemporary it feels. When you think back to the grand musicals of the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, they are products of fashion, of orchestration and instrumentation of that day, of that time. So uh, use, yeah, I, I'm all for the use of uh, electronic music within musical theatre, not for the sake of it, not just because it's contemporary, because that's, this is new stuff that we have, and I'm sure if Gershwin or someone was around with this technology, they'd probably be having a good stab at seeing what it does and what, and what they can do with it to, 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 you know, to serve the piece that they're writing. I asked Luke what he thought the difference was between a pop song and a musical theatre song. Ooh, it's tough. There's, su- there's such a crossover these days within the theatre, certainly within the popular West End theatre, hence the jukebox musicals. And uh, and then, of course, you had Lloyd Webber, who was always clever enough to try and write a song that would hit, make the, the hit, uh, charts anyway as a sales technique. So what, what's the difference there? That's, that said, even the early musicals, um, all were, they were the hit parade back in the day. So what the, the difference between, say, the current charts, in my mind, is intention within the song was the only difference narrative um, and specificity of lyrics, I think. I asked Luke how he thought we could get musicians or artists involved who weren't traditionally involved in theatre or musical theatre. It's heavily, heavily geared towards the lyrics with my issue with pop going. And I think musically it's very welcome and you could kind of work with any writer but uh, and create the sounds but the lyrics would be, would be an issue. So from a theme tune without lyrics, we now move on to a song that Luke Bateman has written with lyrics. And in order to do that, we're going to need to meet lyricist and librettist Michael Conley, a frequent collaborator of Luke. Here he tells us about the show Personality, which our song comes from. Uh, Personality uh, is a musical that Luke and I have been working on uh, for about four years now, I think maybe a bit longer, uh, based on the novel of, by Andrew O'Hagan. Andrew O'Hagan is a Scottish novelist and journalist who's written for publications including Esquire, New York Magazine and the London Review of Books. And his novels include Be Near Me, 2015's The Illuminations and of course Personality, which he wrote in 2003. It's the story of a young Scottish girl who uh, becomes an overnight sensation on a talent show. It's based on a... a a novel which in turn was inspired by the story of Lena Zavaroni. Lena Zavaroni was a Scottish singer and light entertainment performer who was born in the 60s and was found as a child star in a pub in Scotland and was vaulted to fame and success. But as a consequence of that happening to her at quite a young age, she dealt with anorexia nervosa and severe depression and very sadly died at the age of 35. We follow her uh, and her journey of reinvention uh, and her battles uh, with her own body, including anorexia nervosa, um, until she finally comes to, to learn to love herself instead of having an audience love her. And, and the story is told 
using the conventions of light entertainment. So we structured the show as if it were a televised variety show. So all of the songs are diegetic, meaning all the characters know they're singing to an audience. Um, and this particular song was structured uh, as the 11 o'clock number near the end of the show. When the audience that has been with Maria since she was 10 um, is no longer there. You promised you would be right here with me to always see my needs were met. started out as Luke Bateman playing the piano and singing and segued into a performance by ZZ Stralen with Mark Warman at the piano. Luke got us started by explaining how he researched the musical style he was writing in. Um, so spent about six months just watching every clip I could on, on YouTube of Lena Zavoni's life, um, which is so many songs that she covered and performed. Uh, and this one is there's there's one encouraging she wasn't a great actress but when she sang there was just this phenomenal truth of what she's singing and this there was a there's a 
A clip on YouTube of her singing this song called Going Nowhere. Going Nowhere is a 1981 song by Neil Sedaka. Which I just found so incredibly moving and I, I felt that she was putting everything about her life into this uh, song and I thought, God, I wish I would written that song. And then there's a point in the show where we kind of need a similar number. So that was the inspiration for, for this song, uh, Look At Me. Luke and I wanted the whole thing to feel like a light entertainment variety televised special. Uh, so we actually went through our catalogs and, and picked numbers that we liked that felt similar to what we wanted the new numbers to, to replicate, whether it was mood or whether it was uh, rhythm or... or um, Tension. Uh, it's my attempt. Obviously, it's, I'm not going to say it's anywhere near as good as the Going Nowhere, but uh, hopefully, it feels the same passion. So it's quite. It's a pastiche number, absolutely. A pastiche is when a song or a style of song is imitated by a writer to try and evoke a specific period of time or a specific situation, and it takes a song that is recognisably linked with that time period or situation and tries to imitate it in the hope of recapturing some of that style. So it's quite, it's a pastiche number, absolutely, which is interesting within the world of what we're talking about, contemporary theatre. Where does pastiche fit, fit in that? I sometimes think that the word pastiche comes with negative connotations and that people maybe misappropriate the word because what I really think a pastiche is in musical theatre is about tapping into a recognisable tone and time period and potentially location and it connects us to that time period and that location and that style very deftly and then allows the writer the freedom to make it about the character and to make it about the show that they're writing so I think often people malign the word pastiche because it kind of can seem like they're ripping something off but as I've said throughout this whole episode the idea of taking something from the past and reinventing it for the present is a really effective tool. This shows quite is quite particular about pastiche because when coming up with the idea, we thought about why don't we make a jukebox musical, take take all these hits because we could probably tell the story through through lots of famous songs. And in fact, when we storyboarded it together, we actually had a placeholder for many many famous songs. Um, but that's not that interesting, and they're not absolutely specific to what we wanted so the idea is to write all those songs again more specifically but hopefully sounding like they were the hit of the day. It's interesting to hear that Luke said that even when they storyboarded the show with jukebox songs that they weren't specific enough because I think specificity as outlined earlier is the difference between a musical theatre song and a pop song and that there's actually an incredible craft in making things have the accessibility or the tone or the style of a pop song, but actually making them work within musical theatre. And that's something to do with finding the dramatic narrative and finding the drive of a song in context in the story that it's being used to tell. So knowing that the piece we're talking about is one that is especially reverent to the past by aspiring to be a pastiche, I ask Luke how he attempts to make it his own. That's... That's a, that's a tricky question because I I mean I like to like, going back to what I said earlier if I, if I may about because uh, it's written by you I like to think that is my spin um, because I, I'm not um, a composer of, of the original song so my, my version of it hopefully comes from years of writing songs myself that there's something in it that 
is classically mine but attempting attempting to sound like someone else hopefully should still ring true that some some of it's come from me i asked michael how he got started on the lyric so we knew that this needed to be the emotional climax of the show um and i just had that hook line stuck in my head look at me because this is an audience that has been there for her and you know through whom she has built her her conception of herself and her self-worth uh, so the fact that they're no longer looking at her really seemed like a, a poignant visual to me. Uh, so it was that hook, look at me. And uh, I do what I always do when I'm stuck, and I go through existing song catalogs and see if there's anything that inspires me from a, a structural standpoint. And uh, yeah, this particular number, I'm, for some reason, I was attracted to um, Paradise, uh, which is an old Ronette song uh, that Bette Midler covered. Um, and there was just something... Uh, uh, melodically and and orchestrally that that really moved me um so i i use that lyric uh as a dummy lyric uh for for this moment in the show and the original lyrics it looked nothing like what they do now because the way i work with luke um as i've learned to look, work with luke is to leave a lot of space for the music so i don't spend a lot of time on my first drafts i i quickly map out a dummy lyric and send it to luke and then he interprets it and adds adds what he adds um, to the mixture. The lyric came first here, so it, it was one of those songs that came, that I wrote about almost as quickly as the song is long. Uh, and once you've, they're the ones I, I, I you dream about coming across. They, they, it fits. You think, oh wow, the song's actually I've received this lyric. The song's actually already been written. All I have to do is write it down. That's. That, that, that's what I like all songs to be sadly many, most of them aren't this one I think there were really only two musical versions there were just some things in the B section that I wanted to move a bit differently um, only because of the way that Luke had said them were completely different than anything I had in mind it always is and that's what I love about using a dummy lyric is because I know it's going to be something absolutely brand new um, so yeah version 2 is fairly close to what we have now. There's definitely tweaks, uh, but there was not a, a whole lot of back and forth. Um, lyrically, it's changed a lot just because I always go back and change little things here and there. So just to explain, a dummy lyric is when a pre-existing song lyric is used to give shape and structure, and every part of that lyric is then replaced with new words, but the same scan patterns, the same rhyme patterns, the same number of syllables are used as that original dummy lyric. I asked Michael to talk more about why using a pre-existing structure can be very helpful. It's really to get me out of, out of my natural habits. Um, you know, I think it's very easy. If you, if you don't use a dummy lyric, sometimes you can get caught in the same um, the same scansion over and over again and it's just to find something exciting and pop songs are really not my uh, my natural milieu so to find a pop song challenged me to tell a story within that structure because it's not your typical AABA structure um, you're playing around with first chorus and then a, a coda at the end and uh, it just challenges you and uh, you know within that you, you find new ways of expressing something that that you express differently than you might have done before. What's fascinating is that actually Michael's answer is the exact opposite of what I might have assumed. I might have assumed that by using a dummy lyric, it actually lessens originality. 
And what he's saying is by using a pre-existing structure and form, it allows him to experiment and step out of his comfort zone and start to see a lyric in a way that he wouldn't have seen it before. If you look at musical theater structure over and over again, I know a lot of people say, you know, disregard the structure, but I think use that structure to do it your way. I think it's a challenge. It's, it's certainly not a, a formula. Um, it's, an, it's an exciting challenge for any of the brightest of lyricists, I think. Once again, the idea of structure comes up, of using structure both in librettos and scripts and in lyrics as a starting point and as a way of looking at the way things have been successfully done and using that as a way of being original within that structure. And then also looking at points where that structure can be broken rather than just starting at a place of complete randomness and trying to find structure backwards. I asked Luke and Michael about their collaboration and why it was important to them. I am um, an extrovert. I, I couldn't write on my own. It's not, it's not in my personality and it's not in my art. I love collaboration. Um, so that's why I'm really lucky that I work in musical theatre because there probably isn't a greater place for collaboration. It's, uh, it's a learning process and it's exciting. And you know, specifically with my collaboration with Luke, it's learning to leave space. I mean, there's certainly a few songs where I didn't leave space in the original lyric uh, for music. And it's learning to find that right, that, that right balance of, you know, that's why now, I, like I said, I don't spend a lot of time on my first drafts. Um, I work with many people, primarily with Michael. Um, um, yeah, I, how I, I need to send someone something and then immediately go, it's rubbish or it's brilliant back, or this needs changing. If I, if I was a lyricist as well, I, I mean, that would be just too much work that no one's really... I need the checks. I don't spend a lot of time on my first drafts with Luke. I'll send them and then let him breathe life into them and then they come back and they can change radically uh, based on, on what he does. But to me that's exciting. If I find a song that inspires me to to you know wrestle with it and expand it and knock it down and refine it for a moment in my piece, um, it's nice to have somebody else interpret what I've written. Also, do you, I like the, the celebratory aspects with when things are going well and I like the fact that there's always somebody else there who's in exactly the same boat when things aren't going very well. Luke tells me that he very much prefers it when the lyric comes first and that he can receive that lyric and craft the music around that. I much prefer it that way around. I have written it the other way around on, on quite a few occasions. Um, it's much harder to do, I find, to do music first. Um, but it can be quite thrilling. Um, often, if that happens, it ends up going to and fro more as the lyricist wants things changed. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it takes probably ten times longer to write a song music first, um, particularly for the lyricist, because they're so busy trying to fix in a metre that wasn't there for them. It's very difficult, because you've got to figure out how to, how to get from A to B uh, with the notes that you can't change. Um, um, but yeah, I, I maybe I maybe I just maybe don't like the blank canvas aspect. I I genuinely feel when I get a lyric and I look at it straight on my phone and go, wow, here we go, I got this. 
And that's normally how I work. I go, I got this, uh, sit down for piano for 10, 15 minutes, and go, nah, well, it's all right. And then I'll leave it for a day and come back and start again completely from scratch. And try not to spend too long on any one thing because I'm always happy to throw things out that way if I spend a week on something. It, it normally, generally, it's not very good. End result, you can kind of forget which ones were music first and which ones were lyric first, but in the, in the writing process, obviously, it's a very different process. In episode three, Nick Holder said that he thought it was a terrible idea to write some catchy songs and then construct a story around those songs. Well, the way I like to work is that the, the narrative is everything and the songs support that narrative. Um, and there has to be justification as to why you want to have someone singing those songs not because the word musical on the poster will sell more tickets. Um, so therefore, if you're writing a narrative around a load of songs, you're, you're starting with the wrong, the wrong seeds, if, if, if you see what I mean. It's like sticking the plant in the ground without any roots. It has to come from, from under the soil to keep my gardening and energy going. <laughs> <laughs> the seed of the soil is the book or the narrative, the idea, and then the, 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 the songs are the, are the bit that comes out of the ground. I mean, my, you know, my stomach drops every time I see requests uh, to bring on a librettist uh, for a score that already exists. Um, you know, for, as a librettist, we try really hard not to write a single song until you know, we're on version 10 of the synopsis. Uh, you know, with dummy song titles placed here and there for moments that we think can, could could work, and and even after that, to wait until scenes have been written to to fit songs in there as well, just to make sure you're, you're coming at coming at it from the right direction. I asked why music and song could be so useful for theatrical storytelling. I, I, I it, to me, it's about heightened emotion. It gives you the ability to do things you can't do in a play so easily. You can get through a lot more time, a lot more uh, motivation and character, I think, and, and storytelling in a shorter amount of time and a heightened, in a heightened way that you might not be able to do in a play. And that would be why you go, this is why I, I want to tell this through, through music. The way I see it, factually speaking, songs contain more information than just text on its own. Not only is it the text, the lyric, and the music, but the way that those things reverberate against one another cumulatively creates more information. So I think songs are useful whenever there is more information to be conveyed than just simply text, when someone needs a way of expressing themselves that requires greater amounts of information. I ask why they think knowing about the past is useful to writing musical theatre in the present. I just... You don't become a, 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 a you know, an, an engineer without having spent a long time studying what's gone before. You, most, most fields, that's why we spend so long studying. Um, it's all, it all comes from years and years of, of, uh, of looking at what's gone before. See a lot of them, listen to a lot of them, read a lot of them. I personally, um, I think, I just think it's. Why ignore what has come before? You can learn so much from it. You can learn so much from, you know, guys and dolls and Mac and Mabel and, you know, things that have worked and things that haven't. Um, yeah, learn everything and then, and then break the rules if you need to. You know, I've been writing for nearly 10 years now and just I just keep 
keep on doing it is the way to find what what you what you're good at. I mean, you obviously write your first musical and think it's just the best thing ever, um, and then look back at it ten years later and go, that was pretty terrible. Um, I'm probably will still look back in ten years, maybe now, and go, what was I doing? If only I knew then what I know now. So uh, you're evolving as much as music has evolved all the way through up to up to you as well. We heard about innovation from Luke earlier in the episode, but I asked Michael what he thought of trying to write musicals that were innovative and unlike anything heard before. If, if innovation is the the sole reason for writing, I, I just think that's folly. I think innovation... I mean, personally, like I say all the time, I every time I sit down to start a show, I want to write a traditional musical. And that's what I love. That's, you know... Um, but the stories that I've been working on that's, that's not what they need so it is the content dictates form and for me I think writing a good musical is hard enough that if you write a good musical that's practically innovative because I mean, it, it really it, it's so hard to do um, that I, I think if you go out there and try to make the best musical that you possibly can if, if it works it's, it's a small miracle So how to sum up today's episode? I think an idea that came strongly from Luke and Michael is that innovation shouldn't be aimed towards simply for its own sake, but rather you should aim to tell a good story. You should look for your content and find the way it dictates a certain form. I found it interesting that when looking at the Discord theme tune, we found we could create a modern and innovative sound while still looking back at old chord progressions, harmonies and melodies and that something about being reverent to history and reverent to the craft and the past of that craft is useful to making work innovative. Also that tweaking one variable can make something sound new and that new musicals needn't change everything at once and lose the foundations of the medium. I enjoyed sitting with Luke and Michael and hearing how they discuss how essential collaboration is, how being able to pass work back and forward allows you to shape what you're given and make it better to acknowledge that musical theatre is fundamentally a collaborative genre and requires you to combine your authorial power with others rather than give it up. It was also interesting that Luke and Michael felt that having a structure to work with allowed them to be more original. Michael, with his dummy lyric or structure from previous lyrics, meant he was able to take chances and find new song forms that he might not ordinarily have thought about and work into them and make them his own. Equally, Luke receiving a lyric in order to write with it rather than giving him a blank page, instead of giving him a force structure, actually gives him a starting point, the ability to find the music that suits that lyric, the lyric having emerged from the story. Both Luke and Michael talk passionately about looking into the past, but they both use elements of that past to find a shared future. The two of them are telling some extremely inventive theatrical stories and writing some incredibly exciting music, lyrics and musical theatre and I look forward to hearing what they write next. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know what you think about Discord, so please do tweet us at Discord Theatre to let us know what you think or if you've got any ideas for upcoming episodes. Discord was hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Editorial supervision was by Emma Clauber, and editorial support was by Daisy Chute, Jonathan Lenson, Sarah Middleton, 
and Oliver Sones. Our incidental music is by LP Legrand, and our theme music is, of course, by Luke Bacon.